According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me if you would. We're going to get started in uh, Mark 16. Won't spend a lot of time there. We will then move back to Luke 24. But we (coughs) we have our first class today on the Ascension. The Ascension. We wrapped up the Great Commission last week, including the Great Commission and the Great Cognition. And so we're ready now for episode 13 in our Harmony of the Gospels. This is the final episode on page four of our four-page harmony that we've been working with since January of 2004. So um, having gone through each one of these episodes, the, the table, the diagram, the table ends with episode 13, the ascension. I'm going to add a, some points of study related to the session of Jesus Christ at the conclusion of the ascension. It won't be a separate outline. It'll just be uh, point four of, uh, of this outline as we talk about the session of Jesus Christ. What happened when he ascended for the final time? And that's why I have in parentheses the final ascension. I believe that he had more than one. I believe that there were multiple ascensions during the span of his 40-day resurrection ministry on earth. And I can at least prove two at a minimum, and I think we can infer additional ascensions as well. But be that as it may, we'll discuss that as we work our way through. Before we get started, let's take time for silent prayer. Ask the Father to set aside distractions. Ask him to provide uh, a voice to speak and, and ears to hear. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the truth of your word. And Father, we thank you for the person of your Son, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Justifier, and uh, our Advocate, Father. He is our Advocate before you. He sits at your right hand. And Father, this is possible because of what we're going to study today, his ascension and session. Father, the uh, blessings we have in the church age to have a risen Savior who has not only risen, but seated at your right hand and functioning as the head of the church, the apostle and high priest of our confession. So, Father, as we study to show ourselves approved, I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding, give us the ears to hear and the heart to understand. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. We're going to basically take this in a couple of different ways. I'm going to start with the Luke narrative, and then we'll go to the Acts narrative, which is also by Luke, same author. And then uh, we're going to talk about other passages related to the ascension and why they're significant for us, things that Jesus spoke about ahead of time, things that, um, that are appropriate for us to identify, and then ultimately uh, what it is that we uh, focus on. Why is it that we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith? Why is it that we uh, set our mind on the things above, where Christ is seated? Why do we fi- uh, focus on that? And then ultimately, what is he doing now? Is he just retired? <laughs> What's he doing up there? Is he just kicked back? Got his feet propped up? Okay, the father said he was going to have a footstool ready for him. So uh, what's that about? You know, I mean, I know what I do on a Sunday afternoon. I go home and sit down and put my feet up, put on the, the ball game. Sometimes it's football season. Sometimes it's basketball season. Sometimes it's whatever. And then, then I fall asleep. That's, that's the routine. And so is Jesus up there with his feet propped up and sleeping? 
what does he do seated at the Father's right hand? And hopefully we'll have a, uh, an appreciation for that as well. Let's look at Mark 16. It's in the outline, verses 19 and 20. And as we've seen with um, these other verses here in Mark, recognizing that I believe the earliest and best manuscripts end the Gospel of Mark with verse 8. And that once you get past verse 8, verses 9 through uh, 20 is problematic. And even uh, verses after verse 20 are problematic. How long is the ending of of Mark 16? We've discussed this. Um, Many manuscripts, or, or later manuscripts, the Byzantine manuscripts, will have these verses, but they have a lot of disagreement even among themselves. There's a lot of uh, variance. There's a lot of uh, peculiarity in these verses. And so, uh, different aspects there. Anyway, um, I don't deny, of course, that whatever scribe added them to the to the ending of, of Mark did so because it seemed rather abrupt in verse 8. Uh, they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And I can imagine scribes in later decades of the first century and scribes into the second and third century, particularly once Matthew and Luke start getting circulated, that uh, they would desire to attach certain things to the end of this. And uh, undoubtedly that's what happened and how we end with the jumble that we end in verses 9 through 20 plus. So the jumble in verses 19 and 20 So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by by the signs that followed. And then additional confused words. And they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. All right, so there it is. Keep in mind, by the way, there there should be nothing to be afraid of. No believer today should be scared of text criticism. No believer today should be scared of manuscript um, variations or or anything of the sort. Uh, There is nothing that's being hidden. I think the modern publishers do a very good job to at least put the the text in brackets to say, look, we don't believe this is original. We don't believe this is um, by Mark. This was added in later centuries. Uh, But we don't want you to, we're not hiding anything. There's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing that, uh, you know, like the the, the John 8 chapter, you know, the, 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 the woman caught in adultery. Uh, we don't think it was original to the Gospel of John, but we're not hiding anything. So we put it in brackets and we, we uh, give it to you here, let you read it, let you see it for what it is. And uh, something similar here. All right, there is a, uh, an ascension narrative that was included in the ending material. It was added to the ending of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we're not surprised that uh, the scribes would want to add an ascension component to that. Uh, simply because it's featured uh, the way that it is in the Gospel of Luke. Let's go ahead and look at the Gospel of Luke now, Luke 24. <clears throat> so, I mean, is there any value to this in verses 19 and 20? Is there any value for us? All right, he was received up into heaven, sat down on the right hand of God. Well, okay, but we can get that from other passages. We can get that from Luke. We can get that from Acts. We can get that from... Uh, many of Paul's epistles, the 
the, the, and get that from the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. We can get this again and again and again and again throughout the Old and New Testament from Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We don't need Mark 16, 19 in order to establish the reality of the ascension or the session of Jesus Christ. Okay, so we don't lose anything uh, by saying that these verses are not original to the Gospel of Mark. That these verses were not original to Mark when he penned, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when Mark penned this God-breathed and inspired Gospel. Likewise, verse 20, they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. Now, if that's not original, Mark, what do we lose? If we take that out, what is lost? Anything that we don't have elsewhere in the New Testament? We know the signs of an apostle from 2 Corinthians 16. We know from the book of Acts what happened as the apostles went the various places they went, when they went to Antioch, when they went first missionary journey, second missionary journey, third missionary journey. We know from the book of Acts what happened with the apostles as they ministered. Do we lose anything if verse 20 does not belong in the canon? See, there's no information that's lost if uh, verse 20 is not canonical. So, there are folks that will attack you or attack me. I'm used to it, you know, that because it's in the King James Bible that these modern translations are satanic. These modern translations, the New American Standard Version, they always like NASV, even though the NASB is what the publishers call it. um, They call it a satanic Bible because it's taking verses out. It's taking verses out. And, and, And so I'm under a curse for taking verses out and so forth. Well, really? What is lost by removing 19 and 20 from where it didn't belong in the first place? Okay, you understand there's also a curse for adding verses in. Okay, God says, don't add to my word, don't take away from my word. If you're guilty of either, then uh, there's curses that are promised to you. So if you're going to say that the King James is the base text and anything that deviates from it is satanic, well, all right, you're making an assertion, prove it. Okay, demonstrate how King James was written in first century. All right. Anyway, no, none of that. If you, if you encounter a King James-only person, or if you are a King James-only person, come talk to me after class, all right? Because the, the 17th century Elizabethan English is not what was inspired in the first century. To say nothing of the Old Testament and when that was written. All right, let's go to Luke 24. <clears throat> Luke 24. Now, so far, we have gone through 49, if you might recall. And looking at the uh, chapter, really, Luke 24 is very useful for us in placing many of these things into a sequence because it's Luke that gives us the Emmaus Road appearance. None of the other Gospels give us that. Uh, Luke gives us the appearance in the upper room where they, he startled them by popping into a locked room here and saying, peace be to you. Um, Luke 24 does not give us the John 21 material, the, the morning fish uh, thing. Do you love me more than these? All right, does not give us those, but I think 
we can pinpoint those between verse 43 and 44. Okay, so in other words, after the upper room incident here in 36 through 43, there's a, a break, there's a gap until you get to verse 44 with a now he said to them, right? So just in, in between verse 43 and 44 there, we have the gap of material that includes the John 21, do you love me more than these episode, okay? Includes the, uh, the great commission in Matthew 28, where the disciples went to that mountain in Galilee and received the Great Commission. Okay? But then they return back to Jerusalem before the ascension. They return back to Jerusalem, and it is there that they receive the great cognition material of 44 through 49. And remember, I called it the great cognition because it is there that he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And uh, cognition is just a funny way to kind of make a C word that matches with commission, right? And commission is a word we're stuck with, even though commission doesn't show up in Matthew 28. It's called the Great Commission. I like to call it the great, uh, the, the disciple-maker imperative. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. So they have the disciple-maker imperative in Matthew 28. And 2,000 years of church history has come to be known as the Great Commission. I won't single-handedly overthrow that language. I'd like to. It would be great if the whole if the whole world, all of Christendom on earth today, would start to embrace the disciple maker imperative. Wouldn't that be great? And we totally abandon the expression great commission. But I'm not likely to do that. So uh since we have the great commission, I thought I would maybe saddle the world with the great cognition to go with that to establish a difference between Matthew 28 and Luke 24. And that's where we've been in recent classes, uh, where he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And the content of what he gives them here in Luke 24 is not go and make disciples. It's you are witnesses of these things. You are witnesses of his death. You are witnesses of his burial. You are witnesses of his resurrection. And being a witness of the uh, resurrection of Christ is significant for proclaiming repentance for the forgiveness of sins, proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom. Okay? And we understand that um, proclaiming repentance for forgiveness of sins in verse 47 is not go and make disciples from Matthew 28. Anyone here thinks that it is, I'm going to lock you in a room and not let you leave until you figure it out that uh, the Great Commission or the disciple-maker imperative is go and make disciples. Um, proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of sins is something different. Okay, It's the message of the forerunner. It's the message of the herald. It's the message of the coming kingdom. It's the message of second advent in the great tribulation of Israel once the church is raptured. All right. So, that's where we've been. We wrapped that up last week. We're ready now, this week, to move on to the Ascension. And here we have verses 50 through 53. We finish the Gospel of Luke with the Ascension. So it says, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Hey, here's a connection with Sunday morning and Wednesday night. We're dealing with blessings and cursings. Jesus blessed his disciples lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. 
And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Blessing God. The same eulageo where he was blessing them. He was eulageoing them in verse 50. And while he was eulageoing them in verse 51, they were continually in the temple eulageoing God in verse 53. And that's why we got to study blessing. Because I think sometimes we get confused. The English translators get confused. Sometimes they translate it bless. Sometimes they translate it praise. And uh, even in the same context where it's used three times in four verses, they'll change it up in the English language. And I find that uh, disappointing. All right, so there we have it. Pretty short, pretty simple. Um, He'll give more details in the book of Acts, but it doesn't suit his purpose in the gospel to give those details. Uh, It serves his gospel to wrap up his gospel with what he records here. So he led them out as far as Bethany, geographic setting. Again, it's similar to what we have um, in the verses that precede it. We have a Jerusalem context. We do not have a Galilee mountain context where the Great Commission was. The Great Commission was not, the mount of the Great Commission was not the mount of the Ascension. Different mountains. And we want to understand that. So, point one, I'm giving you the Luke gospel narrative. The Luke gospel narrative. It's going to be different from the Acts narrative. But the Luke gospel narrative. Verses 50 through 53. And this should go pretty short. There's not a lot to it. Jesus led the disciples to the place of the final ascension. I call it the final ascension because once he ascended for this final time, he's not returning again. He's not returning again to minister to them, to teach them. In fact, uh, it's likely that he does not appear to them ever again. Um, He will have an appearance to, in a theophany to um, Paul on the Damascus Road. He will have teaching for the Apostle Paul during his time in the wilderness uh, but he, we don't have record where he shows up again and appears to Peter. He shows up again and he appears to, you know, Bartholomew or James or any of these other guys. All right? Now, this is his final ascension. And when we get to the Acts record, uh, I think it's pretty clear the angels tell him, you won't see him again um, until he comes back at Second Advent. They call it the final ascension because he had previous ones. And we'll detail those for you again this morning. So he leads the disciples to the place of the final ascension. He he just can't leave them in the upper room and say, all right, now see you, have a nice life. Okay? Uh, He's been popping in, he's been popping out. He's seen them in the upper room, he's seen a couple of other ones on the Emmaus Road, he saw them out there fishing, uh, asked them if they had caught anything. Uh, He's seen them at different times on different occasions for these 40 days. In this final time, he doesn't just say, okay, you know, he's given them this great cognition message. He's actually teaching them a conference. I think it took several days to review his earthly ministry, to open their minds to understand the scriptures, to say, wait here until you are clothed. If you back up just a moment, you'll see in verse 48, you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So stay here. Stay. Okay? Like a disobedient dog. Stay. Okay? 
He's telling his disciples, stay. Or you tell a child, stay, sit still, sit right there. But then he leads them out. So how can he say, stay here, and then lead them out? Well, because in the under the expectations of staying here, um, the Mount of Olives was considered here. Bethany was considered here. That you could still stay within the expanded temple precincts and still be considered here. All right, this is part of the expectations that that were um, given to the Jewish people about going to Jerusalem, taking part in the temple observance for Passover, for Pentecost. Okay, remember that Pentecost is approaching. It's ten days out from Pentecost, and a lot of the people are the pilgrims are coming into Pentecost. We see them in Acts chapter one. The pilgrims are all coming in. We see them in, in Acts one and Acts two actually. Um, and when they all arrive, I mean, the, the population of Jerusalem just swells, absolutely swells. And so they have boundaries then that are considered still being here. Okay, Remember, if you, if you go out, you're, you need cleansing again. If you stay in, you don't need cleansing again. There's other aspects of law observance whereby you're breaking a Sabbath if you travel too far. Okay, What is considered a Sabbath day journey, where you're not traveling too far and it's not considered breaking the Sabbath, it's not considered being unclean. Likewise, there were expectations about going indoors versus outdoors, about reaching your hand out, a beggar that reached his hand in for the alms versus a beggar who kept his hand outside the window and the giver extended his hand out the window to drop it in the beggar's hand. Okay, All of these, I mean, this was all codified in the Mishnah. This was all codified in Jewish tradition and so forth. But it came about by legalistic reasoning of what is work and what violates the Sabbath. Okay, and, and carrying something. Well, how heavy does it have to be before I'm carrying something that breaks the law? Can I carry my pallet? Nope, can't carry your pallet. Or you can carry something inside your house, just don't go outside your house. Or if you're carrying something outside your house, don't bring it inside. Okay, and they have all these expectations. So, in any event, during the feasts, during Passover, during Pentecost, and then in the fall, during the, the uh, fall feasts, okay, you have... Feast of Trumpets and Feast of Booths. Uh, but these are the spring feasts. These are the ones at the, at the spring equinox. You've got Passover, and then seven weeks later, plus a day, you've got Pentecost. Okay, And uh, on these feasts, you had to come to Jerusalem. You had to be cleansed. You had to be purified so that you could observe and take part in the feasting and, and all the, the things. Okay, Bethany was within that boundary. If you traveled to the Mount of Olives, you were still in the temple precincts. If you traveled to Bethany, you were still in the temple precincts. Jesus stayed at Bethany each night of his crucifixion week. He had his, his entry into Jerusalem on Palm Monday, but then each night he was going back out to Bethany. He was staying with Mary and Martha and Lazarus in their home. Okay, Do you remember that? We were, we were looking at that. And then each morning he would get up again and go back into Jerusalem and have more ministry at the temple and, and so forth. So the Luke Gospel narrative is main point one in the outline. Subpoint A, Jesus led the disciples to the place of the final ascension. The Mount of Olives, where Bethany was located, the Mount of Olives is a significant location for heavenly comings and goings. The Mount of Olives is a significant location for heavenly comings and goings. Here's why. He does not ascend from Jerusalem itself. He does not ascend from Mount Zion. He does not ascend from the Temple Mount. I think that's significant. There's reasons why. When he returns, he won't return to Zion. The first place of landing will be 
Olive, Olivet, the, the Mount of Olives. So let's look at Ezekiel 11. Let's look at Zechariah 14. Let's look at Acts chapter 1. We'll see these things. Ezekiel chapter 11. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 11. <clears throat> and we'll just see the passages for what they say and we'll accept what they say and we will accept that we don't have all the information maybe we want. We will be content that the secret things belong to the Lord but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. And if we needed more information, he would have given us more information. But there are certain localities on this earth that have, if you want to call them ladders or stairways or portals, gateways, whatever you want to call them, there are localities on this earth where the dimension or the the travel from heaven to earth is possible. Bethel was one of those locations. All of it is another one of those locations. All of it is the one that's closest to Jerusalem, as we understand it. All right, Ezekiel eleven twenty three. Um, now, there's a, a vision here, and without reading you the entire chapter, or without actually reading you 10 and 11, um, <clears throat> there's a, a vision that Ezekiel receives where he sees the glory leave the temple. And um, you have to back up to chapter 10 to see that. And uh, remember, Ezekiel is no longer even in Jerusalem when he receives the vision. He was one of the captives in uh, 597 B.C., taken to Babylon uh, 11 years before uh, the destruction of of Jerusalem. And um, he's brought to Babylon, and he starts receiving these visions before they happen. And in chapter 10, uh, the, the glory of the Lord will depart from the threshold of the temple in, in 1018 and um, stand over the cherubim. And then the cherubim departed. They lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them. And they stood still at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. So when the glory did depart, it didn't depart all at one time. It actually departed in stages. And it departed a little bit here, a little bit there. It went to, from the Holy of Holies to the threshold. And then from the threshold to the eastern gate. All right, so it's it's departing in stages. It's departing slowly. It's like, you know, it's part of the spiritual warning about you need to repent. It's part of that spiritual warning about, look, my glory is is leaving now. I mean it. I'm leaving now. I mean it. I'm leaving now. Okay, and for those with the spiritual eyes to see, they could see the departure of that of that glory. Anyway. Uh, more information here. You got the living beings in Hebrew, living beings in uh, Greek. Uh, you have the New Testament living beings, the Zoan in Revelation four and five. <clears throat> anyway, called cherubim here, four faces, four wings. All right, then you get to chapter eleven, and he actually sees the departure here. Um, there's more warnings. There's there's prophecies. There's promise of restoration. And then, verse 22, Then the cherubim lifted up their wings. Chapter 11, verse 22. <clears throat> With the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them, the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of, from amidst of the city and stood over the mountain which is east of the city. Okay? 
Why doesn't the chariot just launch from Jerusalem? Why does it have to go to the next door mountain? Okay. Why do they have to cross that Kidron River Valley and then go up to that mountain? Why did Jesus have to cross the Kidron River Valley and go up to that mountain when he was in prayer in Gethsemane, when he was wrestling with the Lord? Why now does he lead them out to Bethany? Why does he take the disciples out to that mountain? This is the place of his departure. It's also the place of his return. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God. So it's an out-of-body experience. It's a trance or it's a it's an ecstatic experience. And Ezekiel had a lot of these in his ministry. So the vision uh, to the exiles in Chaldea, so the vision that I had seen left me. And I told the exiles all the things that the Lord God had shown me. You know, think about it. They didn't have Fox News and satellite TV and live reporting from, you know, the Indian Ocean searching for a crashed airplane or whatever, right? They didn't have that kind of reporting and so ezekiel actually does all this traveling through time and space uh and he is in a vision he watches all this take place and then he returns back to his body returns back to his waking state in uh by the river uh, whatever that river was the river kabar i think something like that anyway gets back to where the exiles are and uh reports hey guess what i saw last night do you know what's going on back in jerusalem and he gives them the full report of what he saw. <clears throat> All right, Zechariah 14. Zechariah chapter 14. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Final books of the Old Testament. <clears throat> Zechariah is considered a minor prophet, but he's got 14 chapters. I mean, goodness. What do you got to do to make the big leagues? Okay. You know, minor leagues, major leagues, minor prophet, major prophet. Zechariah 14. Now, chapter 13 is kind of sad. Chapter 13, um, you're going to recognize. Um... In chapter 13, he says, uh, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered. Zechariah 13, 7. Jesus told his disciples, this is, this is about to happen. I'm the shepherd. I'm going to get struck. I'm going to be crucified. You're going to be scattered. Peter said, Far be it from thee, Lord, this should never happen to you over my dead body. Jesus says Scripture is being fulfilled. God is faithful about His promises. Peter, in his denial, is denying all kinds of things. He's denying, calling Jesus a liar. He's saying Scripture will be broken. Okay? All right. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord. Two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. I'll bring the third part through the fire. Refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. Now we're shifting from the crucifixion to the tribulation. We see that Israel has a great tribulation coming up. Two-thirds won't even survive it. The third that does will be preserved, will be purified. Then they will call on my name. Jesus told them that. He says, I can't come back a second advent until you say, blessed are they who come in the name of the Lord. They will call on my name and I will answer them and they will say they are my people and, and they will say the Lord is my God. <clears throat> 
Jesus Christ cannot come back at second advent until Israel not just calls upon Yahweh, calls upon Jesus, the Christ whom they crucified, as Yahweh come save, Yahweh come deliver. Then we get into Zechariah 14. A day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. This is how the tribulation comes to an end. This is how in the Armageddon campaign, multiple battles throughout the Armageddon campaign, but this is how Jerusalem is rescued after two-thirds of Israel is uh, devastated. In that day, his feet will stand where? On the Mount of Olives. You see why this place is significant? <laughs> All right. You see why this place is so uh, powerful? You, you, you know why the Muslims did what they did when they conquered Jerusalem? Have you seen pictures of Jerusalem? Have you seen pictures of the Eastern Gate? When the Muslims took Jerusalem in the 6th century, 7th century AD, they bricked up the Eastern Gate. They bricked it up. You can still look at it to this day. They bricked it up. They planted a cemetery outside of it. <laughs> As if they're going to thwart the promises of God. Okay? And this is what Ergen Caner preaches about. If you have some of those old Ergen Caner CDs we put out year, years and years ago. Have you heard those? Do we even have those anymore? Ergen Caner. C-A-N-E-R. Ergen. I think I've got copies at home. If we don't have them here, I'll, I'll, I'll get some to you. They're definitely worth listening to. He was a Muslim that got saved. Got saved in high school. And uh, he and his brother both got saved. And one's a pastor, one's an evangelist. And they, uh, he pastors, uh, he did with uh, Jerry Falwell in, in uh, Virginia at, at uh, Baptist Church in, in Virginia. Anyway. Remind me after class and I'll get that message. It's worth listening to. It's very worth listening to. But he talks about how the, <laughs> the king of glory, right, comes back at second advent, lands at the Mount of Olives, marches down the Kidron Valley, comes back up the other side, and ah, darn, too bad, it's bricked up. <laughs> yeah, what am I going to do now? Anyway, pretty funny, it makes me laugh. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of, in front of Jerusalem. What direction does Jerusalem face, anyway? Always to the east. All right. On the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move towards the north, the other half will move towards the south. And what do you know? A brand new valley. Where'd that come from? Okay, the way of escape. When you think there is no way of escape, he will make a way of escape. That's right. Don't think for a minute that, hey, just because there's no way out now doesn't mean there won't be when you need it. He will provide. The Lord will provide. And so you will flee by the valley of my mountains. For the valley of the mountains, you understand half of it now to the north, half of it now to the south, there's now a valley, will reach to Ezel. Yes, you will flee, just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. All right. Well, it is significant. Acts chapter 1. 
<clears throat> now I get ahead of myself, but that's okay. We'll spell this out when we get to point two. But we can look at it now. The Mount of Olives is a significant location for heavenly comings and goings. Specifically of the Messiah. The glory of God, when the glory of God left, you know that glory never came back, right? The glory of God departed. The the Davidic throne was vacated. When Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, that was the end of the Davidic throne. Zedekiah was the final Davidic king on the Davidic throne. Jerusalem was leveled. The temple was demolished. The uh, furnishings were plundered. The ark itself disappeared. All right? And when they returned 70 years later and they built the new temple, there was no ark, no glory. That's right. They built a new temple, but the glory of God never filled Ezra's temple. All right. Acts chapter 1. Verses uh, 9 through 11. After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And uh, there's a cloud mentioned here. It wasn't mentioned in the gospel, but it's mentioned here. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, (laughs) I love this, I call these guys turkeys, right? The the apostles were just a bunch of turkeys, because... You know what happens, a turkey, the water hits them in the rain, a turkey in the rain, the water will hit his head and they look up to see what hit him in the head and turkeys can drown in the rain by looking up. Anyway, turkeys are stupid. Um, but here's the disciples, like a bunch of turkeys all looking up, right? And uh, two men in white clothing stood beside them and they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? <laughs> what are you looking at? What are you looking at? You know, how long are you going to stand here looking at that? He's gone. The cloud received him out of your sight. Now there's work to do. What are you doing here? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. I believe that's why the cloud received him out of his sight, because he's going to come on the clouds. And um, when he comes on the clouds, in the great glory, where is he going to land? Right here. Right here. In the same way as you've watched him go into heaven, that's how he's going to come. This is the location. You are standing on the spot. And this is where he will come. And so the message of the angels, I think they're angels, two men in white clothing. Um, the message of the angels says that as he departed, so he's coming. And it's going to be like that. It's going to be here. It's going to be here. He's going to come on the clouds. He's going to land here. Zechariah 14 says he's going to land here. This is where the mountain's going to split. All right. The final ascension was the occasion for Jesus' final blessing of his disciples. Point B. The final ascension was the occasion for Jesus' final blessing of his disciples. And I think we want every occasion to be a blessing. We may not know which one will be our final one. <clears throat> which Bible class will be our final Bible class. Which gathering will be our final gathering. The final ascension was the occasion for Jesus' final blessing of his disciples. He raised his hands 
And he blessed them, we're told. He lifted up. It's kind of interesting because he's going to be lifted up. But or he's going to be carried up. But he lifted up his hands and blessed them. The final opportunity while he's here on earth. Okay, he had all the previous opportunities while he traveled among them, while he was teaching them, while he was with them. Can't imagine the blessings of being with Jesus for three and a half years. <laughs> all right. But now he is the final blessing. And what we're going to be studying tonight and next Sunday morning and however long it takes, we're going to be studying the process of blessings and why many of those blessings are actually departure blessings. They're old men getting ready to die and blessing their sons, for example. Isaac wanting to bless Esau and getting tricked into blessing Jacob instead. Or uh, Jacob blessing his 12 sons and pronouncing the prophecies upon those 12 tribes. Or other blessings as they come are coming as departure blessings, parting blessings. Uh, they are the final blessings of, of, uh, from one generation to the next. And I find that interesting. Here's Jesus with his final blessing. I think of Paul and his final blessings as he closes each epistle, in a sense, with, with uh, the blessings of his benedictions in, in the sense of, of that. What are the final blessings that we can leave if we are to depart from a place or a ministry or a location? Don't we want to depart with a blessing? I think we do. We've got the pattern for it here and uh, throughout the Bible. We're going to study that coming up. Now, Jesus is the source, but what's he doing? Why are his hands raised? Why are his hands raised? What's he doing with, with raised hands? He's actually calling upon the Lord in heaven. He's calling upon his Father to be the source of these blessings. He's actually viewing himself as a conduit of these blessings. It's the setting the pattern for how you and I do our blessing. We can't bless in our own ability. We can't impart something upon you, but I can raise my hands. I can lift my hands. I can lift my voice to God above. And I can ask God to bless each one of you. I think it establishes a pattern. It gives us a principle there. All right. Now, a careful reading also gives us two verbs here. One in the active, one in the passive. Jesus parted from them, active voice, and was carried up into heaven, passive voice. Jesus parted from them, active voice, and was carried up into heaven, passive voice. And a careful reading of this, and I think one of them is participial, and one of them is, is pure verbal, um, so after he was uh, parted, I got to reread that. One. It may not be a participle, but anyway, it is passive voice. While he was blessing them, while he was blessing them, he parted from them, and then he was carried up into heaven. That's the best way to read that. Parted from them, active voice was carried up into heaven, passive voice. Why is that significant? Well, it's passive voice also in Mark. It's passive voice in Acts. It's passive voice in being lifted up. It's passive voice in being carried. And um, this actually devastates my childhood dream of uh, being able to fly in our resurrection bodies. All right? Because it's passive voice. He was carried. He was lifted up. You and I at the rapture will be snatched up. Okay, same thing, lifted up, but 
a little bit more forceful uh, immediacy in snatching. Okay? In other words, we don't fly in our own uh, superpower of flight. Okay? Now, I'm still holding out hope that maybe at some point, because okay, the angels fly, active voice, we will be like the angels, neither marrying nor given in marriage. Okay? So I'm hoping that the angel likeness will include flight. That's right. <laughs> I mean, if angel likeness simply includes no marriage, seems like a bummer. There ought to be something, something positive about angel likeness, like flying. So anyway, but I cannot prove resurrection flight capacity based on this verse. There's a lot of things I can't prove. Um, when Jesus pops into rooms with the doors locked, how did he get there? Okay, was that resurrection teleportation? Can't prove that either. Okay, did he walk through the wall? Okay, is there immaterialism or, or phasing or some kind of ability to pass through solid structures? We do know when they tried to lay hold on him, on that occasion he passed through their midst and, and departed. Um, we don't know. What is the resurrection body going to be like? It's going to be like him. We will be like him. We will see him as he is. We will be dimensionally conformed. Our resurrection body is a spirit body. And I believe that spirit body is attuned to the spirit dimension. So anytime we appear in the physical dimension, uh, the laws of physics won't apply to us. Because we will be spirit beings, not physical beings at that point. But I do observe that this is a passive voice. Now, he parted from them, active voice. I think that's simply a matter of, at least as I envision it, is that he just kind of stepped to the side, right? He, he put some space between him and them. He, he, he was blessing them. They're standing or sitting wherever they are. And so as he's blessing them, he parts. He steps away, he starts to walk back, starts to walk back, whatever. He makes sure there's sufficient distance, okay, so that when the Star Trek transpa- uh, transporter beam hits him, Right? I mean, what happens if you're too close to somebody and the, and the transporter beam hits them, right? You get them both. That's right, yeah. If you're too close to somebody getting beamed. All right. You're smiling. We're in a good mood this morning. That's good. <clears throat> but for folks listening on the MP3 file that maybe can't see, I better be clear. Um, I'm not basing my theology on Star Trek. <laughs> transporter beams. Um, you know, if, if he hadn't have separated from them, if he was still real close, maybe, I mean, if John was leaning on his breast, could, could John have been beamed up with him? I suspect that the hand of God is precise enough to grab who he wants to grab, okay? But we see it here. All right. He was carried up. Similar thing when Lazarus and the rich man die. Lazarus was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That the disembodied soul was not capable of its own locomotion uh, in the, in, until such time as the angels bring that soul to where it goes. At which point, Lazarus' soul was then clothed with the interim body, the interim robe, and uh, so forth. The disciples returned to Jerusalem, which technically they never left. 
even as far as Bethany, they're still within the, the Jerusalem precincts. <clears throat> this is how he can say, stay here until you're clothed with power from on high. The disciples returned to Jerusalem and blessed God daily in the temple as they awaited their spiritual clothing. The disciples returned to Jerusalem and blessed God daily. They blessed him. They did the same thing to him that Jesus did to them. The verb is eulageo. Now it's translated praising. They were continually in the temple praising God. It says, and they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy. So he was carried up into heaven and they took the time to stop and worship right there on the spot. They had a worship service. How did they worship? How did they worship? Well, how does anybody worship? How do you worship? How do they worship? I think through prayer, through praise, through fellowship one with another. Different ways to worship. And then when they completed that, they then returned to Jerusalem with great joy and continually in the temple, blessing God. Blessing God. Same activity, how he did them, they do God. How do we bless God? Come back tonight. (laughs) Upcoming classes on how to bless. The opposite of cursing. How do we bless? Well, it's in the temple. It's continuous. It's in the sight of God and men that they're doing this activity. You're blessing God right now. How do you bless God? Obey Him. Walk with Him. Serve Him. It blesses Him. Okay, It praises Him. By your words, by your deeds. You communicate the high regard you have for God. And that praises Him. That blesses Him. That speaks volumes. Remember, eulogia is to say good things about. Like a eulogy. Okay, You don't have to go to a funeral to say a eulogy. You can say good things about God today. And you should say good things about God today. And as you say good things about God, you are praising Him. You are blessing Him. It is a blessing to God when you communicate your high regard. It is a blessing to God when you demonstrate by your words and your deeds the high regard you hold Him in. Again, verse 49, he says, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now when the Holy Spirit comes, does he need particular mountains to descend upon? Does the Holy Spirit require certain localities? No. Actually, we see the Spirit of God coming upon people all over the world. The Spirit of God comes upon, it's like wind. Where does wind come from? All right. The Spirit of God comes in a variety of places. comes upon um, the, uh, Jesus at the River Jordan. comes upon uh, the disciples in the upper room in Jerusalem. The Spirit of God comes upon Gentiles in Caesarea. The Spirit of God comes upon these other confused people in Ephesus. Okay, the Spirit doesn't need a locality to come upon somebody. The Spirit is not bodily. The Spirit is not physical. Jesus rose bodily. Okay. Um, so stay in the city until you are clothed with the power from on high. And so they are continually in the temple praising God and they are waiting, waiting to be clothed, waiting to, be, uh, to have the, the Holy Spirit come upon. And we know because of the book of Acts chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit does descend and descends on Pentecost 10 days after this event. And I think the other day I said it was 
May 24th, I think I was wrong. I think it's May 25th, although I go back and forth on that. Uh, what was the day of Pentecost in 33 AD? If I count the Sundays right, if I count the 50 days right. <clears throat> but then again, I, I get confused sometimes. Sometimes I count from Sunday, April 5th. Sometimes I count from Friday, April 3rd, because that was actually the day of Passover. Okay, so depending on how you count it, long about May 24th is going to be Pentecost. Ten days prior to that would be May 14th. And it doesn't really matter if we get, are we given, do we have to give it a Gregorian date? (laughs) If the Gregorian calendar wasn't accepted till the 16th century AD? Well, I don't know, maybe it just helps us relate. All right? So, Let's look at Luke's second narrative, Acts chapter 1. And we've already seen it, some of the differences anyway. The gospel doesn't mention the cloud, the gospel doesn't mention the angels. But I think it is good, and, and we'll have to close with this, it's good to kind of fix how Acts relates to Luke. Because in, in Luke, chapter 24 is the closing chapter. It brings the the gospel to a close. In Acts, chapter 1 is the opening chapter. Duh, okay? But it 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 brings the, the message of Acts, it opens the message of Acts. And so we got a huge overlap between Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1. And it's, it serves Luke's purpose. And I don't know that Luke intended to write part 2 when he wrote part 1. I mean, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's... Um, the first Gentile to be inspired to write Scripture that we know of, right? <clears throat> as far as we know, you got 22 Old Testament, uh, uh, 22 Hebrew compositions that were inspired by the Holy Spirit by Jewish authors. And then that canon was closed. We have 400 silent years. And then God starts to write a Greek canon to follow the Hebrew canon. But in writing the Greek canon so far, the Holy Spirit has come upon Jewish people to write that Greek canon. Okay? James and Paul and uh, so forth. Peter. Well, Peter won't write by the time Luke writes. But uh, if, if James was written first and then Galatians um, before Luke and Acts possibly Hebrews, but in all these, they're, they're Jewish people. They're Jewish Christians writing the Greek scriptures until Luke. And then God picks a Gentile to write more than any, you know, Luke and Acts is more than even all Paul, Paul's 13 uh, epistles combined, just with word count, with, uh, with the volume of, of material chapters or word count. Um, it's a Gentile that writes more of the New Testament. I find that interesting. And even John, the Gospel and, and Revelation and, and uh, three epistles, kind of short epistles, okay? Luke, when you combine Luke and Acts, you've got the biggest chunk of the New Testament right there. Okay, um, so uh, the first account, notice how Acts begins. The first account I composed, Theophilus, Who's the Theophilus guy? Well, he's the guy that was written to in the Gospel of Luke. Luke 1.1. Uh, or Luke 1.3. 
Um, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. We have a Gentile author writing to a Gentile recipient. And there were many other accounts of Jesus, we're told in Luke 1.1, 1, 1, many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Luke wasn't an apostle. But there were other real apostles writing gospel, like Matthew, like Mark, and several others that don't belong in the canon. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything th- carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. A Gentile believer that had been under teaching. And now uh, Jesus is going to um, Luke is going to provide for him a written record concerning the life, of, the life of Christ. And so, similar introduction here to the book of Acts, where he talks about the first account I composed, Theophilus. See, we really should call Luke and Acts first and second Theophilus. Don't we call it first and second Thessalonians? First and second Corinthians? I mean, it, that's what we call them. Because it's the first and second letter Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. The first and second letter Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Luke and Acts should be called first and second Theophilus. All right. I'm not going to likely overturn 2,000 years of church history. We'll come up back next week and we'll parallel this for you because we're going to have the great cognition here. The great cognition is in verses 6 through 8 and then the ascension in verses 9 through 11. And we're going to show you the parallel of, of Acts 1 in these verses back to what we've been looking at in Luke 24. So, um, rapture pending is where we'll pick it up next week. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.